Welcome to the Cult of Cinema podcast. Please brush your bleach blonde bob, don your blue velvet jacket, and join our family as we discuss horror and genre cinema. My name is Caitlin, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Phil. So, February is Women in Horror Month. Woo! Woo! (laughs) So, in today's episode, we will be discussing our favourite directors, stars, and behind-the-scenes women who have made horror what it is today. There are some well-loved names on our list, but there are also some newer ones that might surprise you, so stay tuned for that. But before we do, let's have a chat about what we've watched since our last episode. So before we go on, I just want to apologize. My throat's a little bit scratchy at the moment. Uh, I'm going to solder on through as I have been plied with honey and lemon tea from Katie. You're welcome. So we've watched a bunch of excellent films since last episode. And you can keep up with what we're watching on Letterboxd. We'll include our handles in the show notes. Can we tell people really quickly though? Because we have good names. Yeah, you first. I'm Caitlin Killer. It's the same as my actual name. Just swapped the O and collar for an I. Nice. And I'm horror film guy. But instead of film being with a F, it's P-H-I-L-M. Because my name's Phil. Woo! God, I'm so clever. (laughs) So, yeah, lots of good films we've been watching. uh, Including, we got to see not one, but two in fact, the entirety of the filmography of Mr. One Robert Eggers on the big screen. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. We saw a sold-out session of The Lighthouse at the Lido, and later on we got to see The Witch at the Astor. Both were a massive treat, and for any of our international listeners who are like, Lighthouse, whatever, I saw that last year. We know! It only <laughs> premiered in Australia in February. Don't rub it in overseas, so, people. I mean, we worked it out that we could have actually ordered the Blu-ray and watched it before the premiere. But we would never do that. But we opted to do the the big screen thing, which is... Y'all know we're film snobs. It's our want. And uh, not not to go into it too much, but I was laughing my ass off. I love that film and like pretty much dead silent audience. So I'm not sure it was... I'm not sure it was for them. I think they were going in expecting it to be a very art house kind of film and an elevated genre, if you will. And, and it, it was ended up being more fart house. So many fart <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I thought it was great. But um, maybe some other time we can talk about Eggers. But yeah, as much as we would love to deep dive on those, I'm sure we will one day, um, we're going to focus on two great films directed by women. So one was new for both of us and one was a rewatch. It struck us afterwards that they were really worthwhile comparing and contrasting. It wasn't really a planned thing. So, uh, oh, and just a warning, the following episode will contain spoilers. So, listen at your own peril. (laughs) Go and spoil yourself. Uh, So today we're going to talk about Goodnight Mommy and The Babadook. So released in 2014, Goodnight Mommy is written and directed by Austrian dream team Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. Couple girls. Whoop. Are they together? Fuck, I just assumed they were because oh, we are. That's, I mean, at first I was like, hey, and then I was like, oh. Anyway, it stars <laughs> Susanna Verst. Thanks for the insight <laughs> into your uh, mental roller coaster there. <laughs> it was a trip, I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> And it stars Susanna Verst as a titular mom with twin boys um, Elias and Lucas Schwartz or Schwartz as um, Elias and Lucas. Uh, I don't know. Like, I am not a director yet. And like, is it cheating to use the actors' names for the characters? I mean, it not necessarily. A lot of films with um, non-professional actors will use that just to keep them in the moment, I guess, make them feel more comfortable. I, I mean, sorry to derail you a bit here, but like, for me, not that I'm an actor at all, but if I was trying to play a part and someone kept on referring to me as my name, like Phil, I feel like that would take me out of it. I feel like it would, I would stop playing that part as much and be more me or like... Maybe that's what they want, the me realism. Hmm. Well, if that's true, it doesn't say a lot for the kids, but anyway... 
The kids are great. Anyway, uh, the film focuses on the nine-year-old twins as they play and explore their new home, a lonesome countryside house during the hot summer. When their mother returns home after cosmetic surgery, the boys are not certain that the woman with the bandaged face is actually their mum. They discuss her odd, erratic behavior and lack of warmth or motherly affection towards them. She seems to completely ignore Lucas and physically lashes out at Elias when he is being naughty. They become convinced that the woman is an imposter. (gasps) That's right. Um, And, you know, they do what we would all do in that situation. They uh, tie her up and refuse to let her go. Which, like, when I was watching this film and I was still on their side, I was like, you know what? If they're onto something here, good for them. Good for them not being victims. (laughs) Good for them? Okay. Yeah, I mean, for a while I was on on team E&L. All right. Um, anyway, it's at this point that the film decides to get a little, get a little bit home alone, but not in a fun way. So the twins burn her face with a magnifying glass and they tape her mouth shut to stop her from screaming, which escalates into being super glued when she tries to call for help. You know, normal things. Yeah, normal. Cool and normal. Cool and normal. Um, realizing she won't be able to eat, they decide to cut them open with scissors and that really... Was it necessary? I mean, I enjoyed it, but was it necessary? (laughs) Um, Later on, she wets the bed and the twins set her free to clean the sheets. What does that tell you? Anyway, taking her one chance, the woman makes an attempt at escape, but the twins have set up a booby trap, which knocks her unconscious. She wakes up glued to the floor and she pleads with Elias to let her go, telling him Lucas died in an accident and that it wasn't his fault. (gasps) But Elias challenges her to prove once and for all that she's their mother by telling him what Lucas is doing, which he reasons his real mother would be able to do. Um, unfortunately for the woman, Lucas is actually a hallucination, so she can't see that he's about to light the curtains on fire. And in a fit of anger, Lucas sets fire to the house in order to get the truth from her. But well, Elias does. Yeah, Elias does. They both like, do. Sort of, yeah. Um, and then the woman burns to death. The final shot shows firefighters arriving at the scene while the boys walk through the cornfield to embrace their mother, smiling. Good night, mummy, indeed. Uh, how did you read that ending, Phil? So I, I'm i of the opinion that Elias actually survives. He escapes the house and he's gone full loopy at this point and he's just hallucinating having the whole family unit back together. What about you? No, I think they're all dead. They're meeting in maybe an afterlife, a limbo... A heaven, a hell, probably a limbo, but yeah, there's no way he's escaped that fire. Yeah, and if if it's like in the cornfield, that's probably some sort of limbo, right? Yeah. Well, who knows? I I, I don't I don't know about the supernatural interpretation because like I didn't get that vibe from any of the rest of it. But honestly, like the end comes out of nowhere, so it's really hard to tell. I feel like in a lot of um, like gritty hardcore especially European foreign films, if they have very um, down-to-earth, um, hardcore behavior from the leads and then suddenly there's um, an ending that maybe may or may not be supernatural, it's usually for a good reason and it usually is supernatural. Okay. Um, I don't want to pick out other films based on this, but if you can think of any, please link them um, on our Facebook group because I would love to chat about that. Very interesting. Anyway, um, the film spends most of its time keeping the mystery alive and it's not until well into the third act that the story reveals its cards, which I really respect. Um, that like type of restraint and patience on the part of the filmmakers to let a story slow burn into a great finale. And even though it is slow burn, it's really tense the whole time. And honestly, for me at least, I was never quite sure. Like I said, I was on team e I was like... <laughs> Wow, maybe she really is an imposture. So, like, good on them for for protecting themselves and not letting themselves be, I don't know, put into pods or some shit. <laughs> That's true. You never really know who to believe. Um, and um, Franz and Fiala's latest film, The Lodge, which should be in theatres in Australia shortly, we got to see it at MIFF last year. Um, it utilises this kind of mystery as well and puts the audience in the hands of a potentially flawed narrator, just like with Goodnight Mommy. And you spend, yeah most of the time wondering what is the truth yeah the lodge is really good so go see it when it comes out support um, independent cinema yeah so yeah i found it really interesting being embedded in the in the boys perspective because you know they're kids so they're not fully developed or logical but everything they that they think they're seeing that their perspective it makes sense it's consistent 
but you still have to question and it's like you know they're kids so is it just that they're sensitive to change or is mom actually evil and i think that's something we don't really get to explore in a lot of other films the idea of an evil or imposter mom i think it's pretty novel yeah i agree i mean there have been a lot of films um of the last 10 years that have been about evil kids with like moms who have to deal with them yeah so that's much more standard yeah like um the ones that we could think of were like the hole in the ground Brightburn, the prodigy um hereditary and the omen and the omen remakes so also we need to talk about cavern which was directed also directed by a woman lynn ramsey and what i find interesting is that the ones that are directed and or written by um women and probably also hereditary i'll add in um they those films seem to include a more nuanced and realistic depiction of mothers of like a mother's experience. And also these like evil child films directed by women depict mothers that are less than perfect, which is exciting because it's women who are pushing those standard conceits of what motherhood really looks like. Yeah. It's really interesting because typically in these like evil child films, the mother is an uncomplicated, traditionally maternal figure, or she's she's just sort of kind of perfect, the perfect Madonna in a way. Yeah. Contrasted with the, the complicated, mysterious child. Exactly. And like, that's just one of the many reasons why I found Goodnight Mummy is really very satisfying. It has a real psychological depth. For instance, when the mother says to... Which one's the one that survives? Elias? Elias. When she says to Elias that it, it wasn't his fault that Lucas died... And it's only at the very end and then only under extreme duress, you know, being burned alive just confirmed to me that she she actually did blame him previously because she had many opportunities to say that to him and didn't. Uh, and it also explains a lot of her pretty mean behavior up to that point. And like, it's not, not only that, once it is confirmed that she isn't an imposter, her actions in retrospect seem to indicate that she was really struggling with guilt. So, you know, perhaps she blamed herself for not being around when the accident that killed Lucas occurred. Yeah, she seems to be dealing with um, internalized judgment that probably a lot of women face. Like, you need to be a perfect mother, and then you're, dealt, like, you're judged for not pursuing a career. But if you do pursue a career, then you're neglecting your children. It's a really unfair catch-22. Absolutely. And um, we're even complicit in that judgment as an audience because we meet her in bandages so we start making judgment calls about the cause like immediately like was it an accident or vanity or i don't know like a necessary evil of being in the public eye since she seems to be some kind of semi-famous tv personality Mm -hmm. um but like if it's an accident we're fine with that it's only if it's vanity or her career that we are seriously judging her which is really unfair um and i mean like, because where's the dad in all of this? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, the theme of her face, her looks, it's it's really complicated in this film. Cause, and it's really interesting that the boys don't recognize her even after she reveals her face and removes the bandages. Which, you know, because she looks to us as adults pretty much identical before and after the surgery. We see photos before and then we see her face afterwards. Or at least not different enough to make us wonder... Or certain that she's an imposter, but it just doesn't change the twins' perspectives. Uh, so that was one of those moments where you really start questioning how reliable the point of view is that you're stuck with. And um, it also really makes you remember that children can get really hung up on small changes. Yeah, I know. But I agree with the twins because I have, uh, let's preface this with story time with Caitlin. Story time with Caitlin. <laughs> um, so I... If you didn't already know, I'm an only child and um, therefore was terribly spoiled by my parents. No. <laughs> That's what everyone thinks. It's a stereotype. Not in my case. Maybe oh, a little bit. Absolutely. Who knows? Anyway. Um, and when I was a young child, I don't know how old, maybe five or six. Um, up until that point, my mom had worn basically the same earrings or very similar earrings for most of my childhood. And... At about five or six, she was going to a party, like one of the only times my parents were going out and having a good time away from me. And she decided... You just totally outed your parents. I know. It's like boring. <laughs> no. <laughs> they love me. They wanted to spend time with me. <laughs> um, so it's your fault they were boring. That's right. <laughs> Sucked in parents. Um, but 
my mum decided to change her earrings and for whatever reason <gasps> I know she did what exactly she betrayed me um, she changed her earrings from like these normal maybe like gold or bronze hoops to um, well, these like specific tiny little Mexican ones that she bought to um, like some dangly earrings and she came out having changed her earrings and I <laughs> in all my childhood wisdom yelled you're not my mom oh wow i'm sure that was <laughs> a lot of fun for her and then she didn't change her earrings for many years <laughs> after oh my god that's so unfair like i mean you're a kid right so that's she wasn't my mom though <laughs> like it's i'm not blaming you because obviously you're a little kid but isn't it super fascinating how early we learn that a mom's appearance like how she's perceived is really wrapped up in her identity, her value as a mother. And she can't change. She must not change. She must not age. She must not yeah, right. change like, her her look in any way, her fashion, her body type. It's like, that's my mom. Yeah. Only that type. And like, obviously a part of that is kids, you know, struggling with the idea of change and like object permanence and whatever. <laughs> but like, I think there's something more to it as well. And like in this film, the mother's face or mummy's face is really the big question because it's hidden. Yeah, exactly. Her face is being, her face is like the site of this motherliness as well as her female vanity. And it's also explored in the way that the twins torture her, I think. Like they burn her face because they know how much it, she values it. They silence her by taping her mouth shut and then gluing it shut. And then on top of that, they burn her. And not only will she be killed from this burning, but she's going to be found disfigured. Like, and I couldn't help but think that like this coming from two little boys, it like potentially is code for the ways in which our society teaches us to value or devalue women based on their appearance and the ways in which they are like behaving. If they're not behaving quote unquote appropriately, then they have to be silenced and punished. I wonder if this film would be made differently now in the age of incel culture. And me too. Yeah. So it's it feels like it's from a different time. I don't think you could make it quite the same way. It wouldn't have the same... Because, I mean, I, I don't know if they were trying to, to put that message in there, but now you can't help but read it oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, I, like, I also felt like they were punishing her from stepping away from the mothering role and that, you know, that period of time where she's in recovery and that her face represents that move towards her career and, like, therefore selfishness and away from the nurturing role and therefore, you know, being their mother. Yeah, and I know we can't really excuse her abusive behavior towards the two kids but i feel like she's not jack torrance and she gets a lot worse abuse back than just being frozen to death in a hedge maze which like that's the easy way out yeah <laughs> I, mean, I mean i mean what, she, what does she really do she she sort of isn't super lovely to them she's and cold and distant and tells them to go play outside it's not like she's stopping them from playing though she does lock them in a room at one point and she sits on yeah, like one body of them. slams. Well, body slams the only one that <laughs> is, is alive. alive. But I suppose some part of what we think is mean is actually we think you know that she's ignoring one of the children for doing something wrong because she keeps referring to Lucas when she's speaking to Elias. She's like, you know, tell Lucas he can tell me himself. That kind of stuff. Yeah, which seems really like emotionally abusive. Yeah, it's. It's kind of like Until she, he's not actually there. <laughs> yeah, it's like she doesn't want to just straight up keep saying he's not real, he's not real. Like she's she's just kind of doing it in a mean like, oh, if he's so real, he can tell me himself kind of thing. Yeah, and he's not going to eat today, only you will. Yeah, it's like I won't set a plate for him today. And it seems super abusive. Which is super rude because, again, story time with Caitlin. Uh, story I time <laughs> with Caitlin. <laughs> You will be uh, surprised, maybe not surprised, to know that I had an imaginary friend when I was a kid. And my parents, um, bless them, would put out a bed, would feed my imaginary friend. That's awesome. Except for when my dad would sit on her by accident. Damn, dad. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. I feel so bad. I'm just outing my parents for... <laughs> 
<laughs> like indulging me so badly as a child. Protective services are going to knock on their door. <laughs> we want to retrospectively. But, you know, Nicole, my best friend, my imaginary friend, she was, you know, my sister, my twin. So I can totally understand how it would be emotionally abusive to not pretend that she's there as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of grief and anger, like, wrapped up in the whole death of the child. And, like, I mean, what what do you actually think? Because they don't really explicitly ever say. It's kind of implied that Elias was somehow, I mean, he's not responsible because he's a kid, but there's an implication that he was involved in Lucas dying. Like, what do you think happened? I don't know. What did you think? Well, I thought it was, I mean, at the start you see them playing and it's sort of setting the scene, you know, these twins playing, being very, like, boisterous, boyish, you know. They're slapping each other in the bath. (laughs) Yeah, being, like, outdoorsy and, like, a bit rough and tumble. But at the start you see them going into a mine shaft and it's a little bit ominous. And then after that, I don't know, something of the tone changes. So I got the impression, thinking back on it, that he died in the mine shaft. Well, that's a good theory. I mean, when I first saw it, I think I thought it was a car accident just because yeah. I associate that most with um, when parents and children get into accidents and I assumed at the start that her surgery was an accident. Yeah. So I kind of linked that in my mind with maybe she was driving and the twins were in the back and they distracted her and she crashed and one of them died and she got her face maimed. Yeah, and again, it's kept pretty unclear throughout. You're not really ever just um, spoon-fed what's going on. Um, Maybe we just missed something. Uh, Let us know. But, uh, yeah, that was my running theory during it as well until the end. when And a few other little things just made me think, yeah, maybe that's not the case. But, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Because, like, I thought she got the surgery specifically for cosmetic reasons because of her job you know, worrying about aging and 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 uh, wanting to further her career because she's... Yeah, celebrity culture and all yeah, that jazz. Yeah, because you catch her looking at it a lot and, and she's contemplating really it. happy with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she wants them to be happy for her as well, um, which is a bit of a big ask considering how mean she's been up until that point. And considering there's only one twin left. Yeah, it was a bit weird, but um, but that's the film. It's It's complicated. Anyway, um, before we go on about this movie forever, um, I've got two little facts to finish off. Hit me. Number one, uh, the actors were not given the script and the film was shot chronologically. So when you say weren't given the script, you mean like beforehand or they just, it's all ad-libbed? I think it was (laughs) not ad-libbed. This is just a documentary about two really terrible children. Yeah, who are playing a huge trick on their mom who's just had surgery. How rude. Um, Who's also now dead. (laughs) They burned to death. Um, Yeah, no. I just think that's an interesting way to film something, especially if you want to keep um, maybe non-professional actors in the dark and keep them totally immersed in their character. I think maybe it it was a good choice. It worked for me. Yeah, I mean, it, the whole film worked for me, so if that contributed to that, seems like a great idea. Nice. And my second fact is that this film was selected as the Austrian entry for the 88th Academy Awards. Did it win? It wasn't even nominated. Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> but we already knew that. <laughs> Just yeah. extrapolate in general. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, those were very interesting facts. Interesting facts. So the next mother-child nightmare scenario we watched was The Babadook. by Jennifer Kent in 2014, The Babadook stars Essie Davis as Amelia, a worn-out single mother of Sam, played by Noah Wiseman. Six years on, Amelia is still grieving the loss of her husband, who died in a car accident while taking her to the hospital to give birth to Sam. 
Sam has some anti-social tendencies. Yeah, he doesn't really have a social filter. And he's fashioned a collection of dangerous weapons, including a backpack catapult and a crossbow that shoots throwing darts out of junk. So, and these are designed to hunt the monsters under his bed. Sam gets caught with these weapons at school, forcing Amelia to take him out. Exhausted, she's not sleeping, he's, he's got insomnia. She seeks medical help, particularly for his odd behaviour. She just needs a break. Around this point, an ominous pop-up book turns up, featuring the titular and mysterious Babadook. Babadook. <laughs> a top hat wearing figure clad in black with long, sharp fingers, a white face and a wide, grinning mouth with far, far too many teeth. So the, the book's pretty threatening, so Amelia destroys it. But the book returns, informing her that denying the Babadook only makes him stronger. The book now also depicts Amelia killing the family dog, her son, and finally herself. After burning the book, she goes to the police, completely distraught, and they laugh in her face about her claims of being stalked, which was a little bit real. That was too real. After seeing the Babadook's coat on the coat hook behind the coppers, she slowly backs out of the room. Isolated and utterly exhausted, the two become desperate shut-ins, with Amelia eventually succumbing to the Babadook, who appears to possess her. She kills their dog and terrorizes Sam until he traps her in the basement, knocking her out and tying her up. That sounds oddly familiar. Appealing to her with love, Sam helps her to overcome the Babadook, which manifests as black, thick vomit. This is not enough, however, because... He can't get rid of the Babadook. Finally, Amelia stands up and faces an ever-growing and monstrous Babadook, bellowing defiance and rage at it until it subsides. She scares it into the basement and locks the door. The film ends with Amelia feeding worms to the Babadook, which now lives in the basement, before going back up to celebrate Sam's birthday on the actual day of his birth for the first time ever. So we watched this afterwards, Goodnight Mummy. And uh, what and we've seen this before. So what did you think, Katie? Uh, I think it's interesting to have two films made in a very small time period that have such similar themes running through them. Mm. So they both depict moms who are dealing with grief and treat their sons badly because of it. Also, they make you question your allegiance to the lead characters, so Amelia and the Babadook and the twins in Goodnight Mommy. Yeah, absolutely. There's a turning point in both, I think, where you start wondering, is this lady just abusive? And I think there are parts where the answer is yes. Very much yes. In The Babadook, Amelia says some really rotten things and acts in a pretty terrible way, some of which are ascribed obviously to sheer exhaustion and grief, which we can probably understand to some point. And uh, some of it is ascribed to her being possessed by The Babadook. And at that point, like... She gets real. So like, real. Kills the dog, threatens a kid. She's saying terrible shit. She had a knife. In fact, her whole performance and the brutal comments that she makes, I feel like they couldn't help but have been quite informative for one Ari Aster and for Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary specifically. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Plus, um, let's just quick do a quick shout out to all the amazing Aussie actors and specifically actresses who are killing it in multiple genre films. Um, Nicole Kidman and Samara Weaving, I'm looking at you too. Yeah, I mean, apart from Tony and... Essie hasn't done multiple, has she? No. Oh, I wish. I know. Susie Porter, Claudia Carvin. Yeah. They've been in a couple. Yeah. So, yeah, the actors in the Babadook do not disappoint. Sam starts off as a sort of a Damien from the Omen sort of figure, but a lot louder and like more incredibly annoying <laughs> like you, you get you get why she's exhausted and like her patience is pretty inhuman and everyone knows the meme of her shouting why can't you just be normal and him just making this horrible shrieking noise yeah i mean this was a rewatch for me as well and like it's still uh, it's like nails on a blackboard oh, he just gets under your skin <laughs> but at some point he transforms into kind of a Kevin McAllister, Home Alone, sort of Danny from The Shining combo. Like at some point you're like, oh shit, you're not that annoying anymore. And you're not like the monster. You're actually... Fighting for your life. 
yeah, and kind of kicking ass. And you want him to win. He he basically is the reason they survive. And it's such a complex character for a kid to play, and he nails it. Oh yeah, his performance is fantastic, and like Essie's is as well. Because I mean, Amelia starts off as a Wendy Torrance figure, really bet down and tired and just she's had enough she's in a bad situation but she ends up being as a she ends up being a really terrifying embodiment of the monster more terrifying than the actual monster itself than the guy in the costume like she she just gives it 150 percent effort and we bowed down to you queen essie yeah it was blistering can i just talk about the cinematography for a moment because i love it in this film go for it um, there's lots of use of single shots of Amelia isolated in the center of frame when she's in a group of people to communicate like her loneliness and her otherness. And she's isolated from the others because they all have partners to split their burdens with. Yeah. And her acting at those times as well really communicates how alone she's feeling and like, and also how exhausted. Uh, and also I think the shot selection and direction are especially effective when Amelia is being judged by the other moms at the birthday party. And when she's being grilled by her son's teachers and principal, when she picks him up from school after he's gotten into trouble of having weapons. And see, like, there we are again. We've got the theme of judging mothers, especially single mothers. And again, it's wrapped up in that grief and dealing with loss. These are themes that come up again and again in female-centered, female-directed horror or dark drama films, I think. And it's, it's telling that a lot of that judgment's actually coming from other women. Yeah, agreed. And, and they're not. I mean, they they have <laughs> at one point one of her sister's friends is talking about how she supports underprivileged women, and it's it's this uh, sort of very condescending uh, uh, comment that she makes to Amelia. And rather than feeling genuinely supportive, it feels like she's just saying, "Oh, look at me, I help people." Yeah, especially when she's complaining, like, oh, "I don't even have enough time to go to the gym." Yeah, so it shows a real lack of insight, doesn't it? But like, it, it's fascinating that the writer director Jennifer Kent captured this this feeling of isolated, even from other people who should be able to properly empathise with your situation. So one thing that also occurs to me when I'm thinking about these films and horror in general is it occurs to me that we write about and explore things that scare us when we either make or you know. Are involved in these films do you think that these films you know these are horror centered around family drama specifically focusing on like a mother's experience these films that really zoom into and deeply explore a mother's grief loneliness her relationship to her, sometimes a problematic child do you feel like these films express anxieties or fears that are really specific to women I think so. I feel like uh, Rosemary's Baby, which was um, directed by a man, was just the beginning of the exploration of these fears and that since the prevalence of women behind the camera, we've been able to delve deeper into that psyche. It's a very particular fear of and about motherhood that women carry with them and it's not only wrapped up in pregnancy and giving birth. Like These films have explored, what if I fuck up my kids and they turn up into fucked up people? Yeah, or even the horror of the unknown of getting into the situation of being a parent, you know, that what if I do everything I can and they're still fucked up? I mean, that's something that Hereditary kind of looks at, you know, what happens if my kid makes a terrible mistake? And um, we need to talk about Kevin when Tilda Swinton has, yeah, birthed a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, that's, spoiler alert, but like that's the, uh, the perfect archetype for that, I think. So why do you think these women directed and written films what do they bring to this topic that's particularly particularly effective um i think they allow mothers to be deeply flawed but not in a disney villain kind of way Mm. they're just doing the best they can with the situation that they're in so i think at times they can be deeply unlikable but still the audience can really empathize with them and that's the difference with female written and directed films. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a lot more three-dimensional, that's for sure. Yeah, and they're allowed, 
I mean, we've allowed anti-heroes their time in the sun and these films may be the rise of the anti-maternal. Mm. And what I mean by that is like anti-heroes are still the heroes of their stories and these are mothers that still have children. It's just that, just that these types of characters both act badly and get away with it, but for different reasons. Yeah, and it's not that they're, as you say, like a wicked witch kind of figure where they're, or an evil stepmother or something like that where they're they're just one-dimensional. Like they, they're bad sometimes and they're good sometimes. They're really just very natural human characters. I think particularly though a lot of times mothers haven't been able to act like normal human beings who are flawed and so this not only allowing them to be flawed, but exploring those flaws deeply is the difference you get. Yeah, and I suppose that implicitly comments on that that extreme judgment that society has about the conduct of mothers and women, you know, before and after they have children. Until they get to a certain age, and then they're just ignored completely. <laughs> yeah. And I think one other thing that, that strikes me is that these films that are written and directed by women, they have a, I mean, even Hereditary, which I think is like fantastic um, example of this kind of film. These female directed and written films, they have a realness that isn't really replicated by male directors. Like I feel like I'm getting a, a psychological insight. I'm getting access to forbidden mental depths. Oh, yes. <laughs> the, the true grim stuff that I can't even imagine that might lurk inside somebody that the fears they feel like these these real anxieties you know they come from somebody with a completely different set of experiences to me as a you know cis hetero male exactly and they're very unique to a certain set of women what do you mean by that sir um I think a lot of these films in particular um they're, apart from maybe the Babadook, a lot of times they're about middle-class to upper-class women. Oh, that's true. And I think the Babadook has done something slightly different with a lower-class single mother who, on top of having to deal with the child, has to deal with all of the financial implications that that goes along with as well. And I think that that was a really interesting point that Jennifer Kent managed to make in the story of the Babadook. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. We don't really get that many horror films that focus on family poverty or particularly single mother poverty. I feel like there was also a little bit of that in The Hole in the Ground from memory. Yeah, there was. But also, if we're being totally honest, all of these films are whitey, whitey, white, white. Mm. I'd like to see more of this genre, but with a focus on diversity. Mm, yeah, I mean, again, it's just another perspective that we don't have access to that would be very interesting to see, you know, the fears and the anxieties and the the psychological makeup of that perspective. Agreed. I feel like we also haven't seen many fatherhood horrors. And I'd like to see a father-daughter dynamic. That would be interesting. Well, that did come up recently in the Pet Cemetery remake. You're right. And that was definitely, for me, the most interesting part about that film was where it actually diverged from the original and it made it, you know, they had that little focus on his relationship with his daughter. And that was, yeah, it was really interesting. Which is interesting because if you think about it, the original Pet Cemetery was directed by a woman and mm. had a different take again. Absolutely, yeah. Although it was written by Stephen King. It was, both times. So, yeah, but like it's, she brought a particular focus to it that was slightly different. Yeah, and like the, I can't remember the name of the two guys who directed the remake, but yeah, it was really interesting for them to focus on. The dad and daughter yeah, dynamic. Absolutely. Well, some more films for you guys to check out. Let us know what you think in the comments. If you can think of any horror films that have a father's perspective and like the anxieties and the fears or the the tribulations of a maybe even a single father in a horror film please illuminate us let us know because nothing's coming to my mind at the moment i can think of loads of films where dads are evil or bad or but not the, si the single father with a child who's evil 
Yeah, or like even just flawed but not... Totally evil. Totally evil. And like there's lots of drama films that have these kind of things, but yeah. Be interesting. interesting to see something in the, in the genre space. Awesome. Well, our next segment is called Filmmakers Ceiling Breakers. In this segment, we're going to tell you some of our favourite females in horror past and present. By past and present, we don't mean that uh, their careers are over for past. We just mean that they've been making things a little bit longer than our present ladies. So this section is going to be a little bit briefer than we had initially planned for uh, the sake of keeping it short because we spoke for quite a long time on the other section. So would you like to start us off, Katie? What's your female director from Horror's illustrious past? I have picked the uh, filmmaker Mary Harron, who co-wrote and directed uh, American Psycho. Excellent choice. Well-known horror comedy. Uh, we love American Psycho and uh, the fact that it was picketed by feminists when it was written and directed by ladies is just another tick in the box for me. <laughs> that makes it sound like you're not a feminist. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of interesting. Oh, hearty feminist over here. <laughs> oh, I know. Feminist as fuck as the badge that you wear says. Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of a funny thing to hear actually considering it's it's clearly satire taking a piss, taking the piss out of like uh, misogynistic bro culture and toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. It's yeah. So yeah, the Som- male gaze. Sometimes subtext is maybe a little bit too tricky for some people, or or just if you see something on screen, it doesn't mean that it's celebrating that thing. Yeah, always a tricky debate, I think. But um, and I I feel like to play devil's advocate, or in this case, more likely a Christian advocate. <laughs> that it's like, oh, we don't want to have it depicted because then people will want to try and replicate it or they'll celebrate it. And to be fair, I have known some guys who have unironically celebrated Patrick Bateman. Yeah, but that says more about them than it does about anybody else. True. (laughs) So, my pick for a director from the past is Catherine Bigelow. Ah, queen. So, I've only seen two Catherine Bigelow films. One was Point Break, which I didn't love. I love Point Break. I stand Point Break. You stand by Point Break? No, I stand it. You what? I stand it. It's what the kids say. Look it up. <laughs> I will not do that. But I fucking love Near Dark. And I know she's kind of more known for like taunt political action thriller sort of crimey things these days. The only lady to ever win an Oscar for direction. Which is... Probably not something to celebrate. At least someone wanted, has one. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go whoop whoop, but then I realized, no, that's bad. Not to mention all one. of the lack of female cinematographers who've won them. Yeah, which is a load of bullshit. So, yeah, uh, if you haven't seen Near Dark, I only saw it in the last year, but it's definitely up in my favorite vampire films, full stop. Such a treat. So who is your female director from the present? I've picked uh, the one, the only, Matty Doe. Oh, interesting. Lau's foremost female horror director, the first female director and the first horror director from Lau. Yeah, I was about to say, she's first and only, right? Yes, she is. I think I've seen only one of her films. I saw it at Monster Fest maybe, I don't know, six years ago or something, Dearest Sister, and it was really interesting. Yes, I love Dearest Sister. I also really enjoyed her um, debut feature, Chantali, which I got to see at Strange With My Face a few years back. And I'm super looking forward to her newest movie, The Long Walk, which has been playing to great critical acclaim all over the world, except for in Australia. So we would love to see it, Maddie. Please bring it. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing it. So the director I chose... Um, Actually, at the same Monster Fest that I saw Dear Sister, I saw a Q&A um, Australian debut screening of Raw by Julia, and now I'm hopefully not going to mangle this, Julia Deconau. No? Deconau. Deconau. Did she Deconau. Not say Deconau, though? Julia, sorry, Julia. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm mangling this. I want to hear you say it again, but I think it's Julia Deconau. So, Raw is, for anyone who hasn't seen it, a sexy uh, cannibal film. With teens. Sexy teen 
love story. Love story. Sisters. Sisterly. But not incest. No. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting. It's it's a comedy. It's a black comedy, although not a lot of people maybe get that vibe. No one agrees with us. It's definitely a comedy, though. We laughed our asses off. Um, actually, we were in the same audience, despite not knowing each other at the time, and I think we were probably the only two people laughing, but... I was crying with laughter. Absolutely, but we do know that the director also thinks of it as a black comedy. So we're in good company there. All right, so the next category is actor. Who did you pick for female actor from the past? Uh, Well, she's well known to the horror community, but if you're not a fan, maybe you should look her up. It's Barbara Crampton. Yay! Well, Babs. Babs, as she's fondly known in this household. Although, sadly, there are so many Babs that we call Babs from... Barbara Steele. Yeah, there are lots. So Barbara Hershey. Exactly. Babs. The Babs trio. The Babs of horror. Um, we love her in uh, Be- From Beyond, Reanimator, You're Next. I love her in Lords of Salem. There's Castle Freak. There's many, many more. We just need to get into more Babs in general. Yeah, she's a horror staple. She's a queen. We love her. What about you, Phil? Uh, okay, so mine is really old school. I went with Una O'Connor. Who, you may ask. Yeah. So Una O'Connor is best known for her role in The Bride of Frankenstein. So she's the, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but like hysterical, over-the-top lady who (laughs) just basically steals every scene and turns it into like this hilarious, campy nonsense. She's also great as the wife of, well, she's the innkeeper and married to another innkeeper in uh, The Invisible Man. She's great. She's a, steen, a scene stealer. Yeah. So very funny, um, hysterical and hilarious. Love it. Uh, and who did you pick from today's, from the horror present? Uh, I picked another blonde white lady. That's right. I picked Samara Weaving. Yay, Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's great. Um, we love her in Ready or Not. I loved her in Mayhem and The Babysitter. And you first saw her in Ash vs. Evil Dead. I did, yeah. So she's kind of like, I, I want to say she's kind of like the mod- modern Barbara Crampton, but a little bit more like leading lady rather than just supporting. So not just, but rather than a supporting character. She also is in a lot more of straight horror comedies, I would say, than Barbara Crampton. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of think, do you mean straight horror or straight? No, straight horror comedies. I mean, Ready or Not, Mayhem, The Babysitter, Ash vs. Evil Dead, they're all straight up horror comedies. Yeah, fair fair point, fair point. I mean, Barbara Crampton was also in Reanimator and From Beyond, which are funny. But they're not, I wouldn't say they're straight up horror comedies. Oh, Reanimator is. Uh, It depends who you talk to. I think they both are. I would say they are. Well, they need to be starring a movie together, ASAP. Oh my God, I would watch that. What have you picked next, Phil? So I picked, although she, technically she's not just from the present because she's been doing it for ages, but Tony Collette and Adelaide. Oh, Estrella we Lee. love Tony Collette. So she just um, blew my mind with Hereditary, and I hope to see her doing more genre stuff soon. I still haven't seen Sixth Sense, actually. <gasps> uh, we should do a double feature Tony Collette and her weird, weird children. Down for that. So, our third and final category is the wild card. Wild card! So, basically anything apart from actors or directors that we felt like we wanted to celebrate. So, who's your wild card from the past? I've picked two wild cards of people I've actually met in real life because I'm going to name drop. So... Um, so the first person I've picked is Sandy Sissel, who was the cinematographer on The People Under the Stairs. Ooh, love that film. She talked about um, in a Q&A at Strange With My Face all the different um, challenges that she had and working with uh, Wes Craven as well. So many stories about how amazing Wes is. And yeah, she is just an amazing artist and yeah, had to mention her. Okay, so not... She didn't talk about her troubles working with Wes. No. Okay. He's there a, was a comma. Nope. He, that was like definitely a comma. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That would be really interesting. And what did you pick? I picked Deborah Hill. <gasps> Deborah Hill. Uh, who was the co-creator with... Um, John Carpenter. Wow. I was trying to say John Carter, but I, I don't even know what that is. That's a movie. And it was also my grandfather's name. 
cool. <laughs> <laughs> she was the co-creator with John Carpenter, and honestly, she should get a lot more credit because her her writing and producing resume is amazing. Intimidating. Very intimidating. So, uh, what was your wild card from the present? I picked Ashley Blackwell, who's not only a writer and producer on the amazing documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, but she is also the founder of Graveyard Shift Sisters. So it's a scholarly website which seeks to purge the black female horror fan from the margins. She is an all-round badass lady. I think Horror Noir is finally becoming available in Australia. I don't know where I saw it, but it is becoming available somewhere. You need to see it. And it's amazing you need to see it now everyone it it just totally yeah we found it very very interesting apart from just being an excellent documentary in its own right it also just filled our to watch list with all these like far out looking films so So amazing and phil lastly we had to fight over that pick actually but we did because katie's meta she got to have her hi ashley you're the best (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and my pick was amy jump so amy jump oh so I didn't realize how much Amy Jump has been involved in all these films that I really, really enjoyed as both writer and editor uh, alongside Ben Wheatley. So she... Couple goals. She like co-wrote and edited things like Free Fire, Kill List, Field in England, just... Sightseers. Sightseers. Like she's just done so much great work and yeah, props, mad respect. Uh, what a great list of ladies and there were a lot that we wanted to include including people like jennifer kent and um the lady who did goodnight mummy whose name is veronica france 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 yeah but obviously we already spoke at length about them so they didn't get on the list and there's a lot of others that didn't get on there but no doubt we'll talk about them in the future and if you've listened to our previous episode we've named a lot i also wanted to um special mention alice Lowe once again alice Lowe because why not Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's us. Writer, director, actor, Alice Lowe. (laughs) Alice Lowe show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that's all we have for today's sermon. Thank you for joining us. So please write to us at cultofcinemapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at cultofcinemapod. Or join the discussion with other cultists on Facebook at the Cult of Cinema podcast group. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're using. And if you can spare a few seconds, a quick review would be fantastic. Feedback is always welcome, and the ratings and reviews really help us to spread the good word. So, thanks in advance, and until next time, all all hail hail cinema. cinema!